I came, I'm prepared up here. I have a second bottle as well. Because I hope I don't go overly long, but I couldn't pare this sermon down too much. It was... Don't worry, we, we won't go too long. But there's a lot here um, in this uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. And I just couldn't cut it off anywhere. I only get to do it in one go, so I, <laughs> I'm cramming it all in there. But as you, I can go as long as I want to. <laughs> well... I don't know if I want to go next week. <laughs> I'd rather get it out one shot and get it out of the way. Anyway, as you can see from the title, we're um, the title, the Gospel of the Resurrection. It's going to be 1 Corinthians 15, and that does mean that I'll be talking about the gospel and the resurrection. And resurrection, I think we all have a clear understanding about what it is that. Uh, we're referring to, in this case, the bringing back to life in glorified new bodies, those who have died in Christ. There's also a resurrection of the lost who are raised to judgment, but in this particular chapter, Paul's not um, speaking of that, so neither will I. That's where We're talking about the resurrection of believers in the sermon. The word gospel, however... Um, tends to be banding about without a great deal of specificity. We use the term gospel in uh, such phrases as living out the gospel, sharing the gospel, social gospel, even prosperity gospel, all these different gospels. But in the New Testament, the, po- the apostles mean a very specific thing when they speak about the gospel. So with that in mind... Let's see if we can get our heads into that same space. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us an understanding of the truth therein and that you would cause my words to faithfully convey your meaning and message for us this morning. Amen. So, what do we mean by the word gospel? Bridges is a Christian church. We study the Bible, we proclaim the historical truths and doctrines of the Christian church as uh, believed and held and taught throughout the ages. We support the mission of spreading the gospel around the world to all peoples. We are what the world would readily label evangelical, and we would proudly claim that term. And of course, the word gospel, as we see in our New Testament, is translated from the Greek word euagelion, which is where we get our English word evangelical. And the word euagelion literally means a good message, good news, good tidings. So gospel, as it's stated, or as we find it in the New Testament, means a good message, a good news, a good tiding. The only question left then is what is the contents of that good message. You could get a good message that you would just, that your offer on your new house that you had been, that you want, 
the owners have accepted your offer. That's good news. That would be a good tiding. You may get good news that you just won a sweepstakes and you're going to come into some great prize. Or you could get good news that, you, that your cancer screening came back negative. All of those would be good messages. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a specific good news, good message. What is the content of that message? Well, in looking at the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to lay out one of the key components of the good message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that component is the bodily resurrection of believers. Paul is going to make the argument that the doctrine of bodily resurrection is of such importance to the gospel of Jesus Christ that without it, our faith is in vain. Now, Paul is writing this letter in response to a letter that the Corinthian church had first written to him with a whole gamut of questions seeking guidance and and direction, covering multiple topics. So Paul is writing back to them to address those questions, along with others, issues that he had heard that have arisen within the Corinthian church, a church that not too long ago he had founded himself. Now, that, that, the result of that is that when we read through uh, Corinthians, it's like a litany of corrections to errors and false doctrines. These are all things that had swiftly crept into the Corinthian church. And in this particular chapter, Paul is addressing, is addressing their erroneous ideas concerning bodily resurrection. And he's going to do so in such a way as to demonstrate the centrality of that doctrine, the bodily resurrection of believers, to the gospel message, the very gospel message that their salvation depends upon. Now, these are first century Christians. They're in Greece. They live in a Hellenistic culture. They're under uh, Roman domination. We can certainly infer that they have different influences upon their thinking, their philosophies, their ideas on many different um, matters, opinions that would differ from the modern day uh, person like us, who have who've also been influenced by centuries of different cultures and religions and philosophies. But that doesn't mean that the ideas and the concepts that we may have about this key doctrine of bodily resurrection couldn't lead us into similar errors that result in the same consequences for our faith. We may not be uh, Platonist. We may not have a dualist view of the physical being evil and the spiritual being good, and that it would be a good thing. It would be preferable for the spirit to be released from the physical body. Then again, maybe some of us might hold that idea Even if we don't, though, we can still fall into equally mistaken beliefs that are meant to, that that we are meant to have in this earthly tent, in this life now, we're supposed to have our best life. We may feel that we are meant to be healthy, that we're meant to be wealthy and successful in all of our endeavors. Or even that by virtue of our good works and deeds that we can usher in a better society and reform all the evil that is in the world. Paul's going to make the argument, though, that a correct view 
of the bodily resurrection is a vital part to having a correct understanding of what the true gospel message of Christ is and the good news that it brings to this lost and fallen world. Now, like I said, we're going to cover um, a lot of ground. It's a long chapter, but I couldn't take one piece of it because it's like a good argument all the way through. And I just wanted, I was so excited going through it and thinking, wow, Paul's really getting something here. We're going to try to get that whole argument in. So there's going to be, you know, different parts. We're going to look at all the parts of his arguments, but we're not going to go into detail of every specific, you know, issue. Um, You know, if you want to do that, there's plenty of sermons out there online that you can get where people do five, six, seven, eight. If if Cliff was doing this chapter, it would be ten sermons, minimum. (laughs) I'm sure of it. But we're going to go through it in one, get an that, that 35,000-foot view, and hopefully get a good understanding of what his uh, argument uh, for the bodily resurrection is. Um, so the, the bottom line is it's going to turn out to be a very good message, the, the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. So without further ado, I think we're going to get into the passage itself, and I'm going to have my wife, Dina, come up, and she'll read the first 11 verses for us, so let's follow along. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Thank you, Dina. So... In this first part of the chapter, this first passage, Paul lays out the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He reminds the Corinthians that the resurrection was a central issue of the gospel that he preached to them. And this good message that they had received was what they stood on as part of the Christian church. And it was this good message 
by which they were being saved, if they held fast to it. If they do not, did not hold fast to the gospel that Paul delivered to them, he says that their faith, their, their, faith, their belief, would be in vain. And this good message that he delivered to them was the same that he himself had received from Jesus directly. In Galatians 1.12, he tells the Galatian churches, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel message, the good news, that Paul delivered to the Corinthians was the same gospel message that Jesus had delivered to all the other apostles as well. It was the same message that they all preached. And Paul declares that that good message, the one he just laid out, is of first importance above all else. He can, if you condensed the gospel message, this is what you come up with. That Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now this world-shattering event, this impossible occurrence of a man dying, his corpse being buried, and him rising again on the third day to life in a new, transformed, glorified body was not some myth, it was not some legend, it was not a cleverly crafted tale, it was a fact. It was witnessed by numerous, multiple eyewitnesses on multiple events. And Paul himself was one of those eyewitnesses. Paul is laying this out to establish and make certain that we know and understand that he is speaking of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's doing this because he is going to proceed and lay out that the fundamental good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the resurrection of the dead. Now, there have been many throughout the history of the church who identified themselves as followers of Jesus, who labeled themselves Christian, who upheld Jesus as the greatest moral teacher the world has ever known, even going so far as to say that his teachings and ministry are from God. But whether through embarrassment or simple incredulity, balked at the notion of bodily resurrection. Is it even important, they might ask? Is it, isn't it enough to follow Jesus' example of love of God and neighbor, to do right by others, to seek the good of all people everywhere and to not deny our own selfish instincts and desires? I mean, we can, we can accept that there's an afterlife. Who knows what lies beyond the grave? Shouldn't we, however, focus on the here and now, on this life, the good that we can do in the time that we have on this earth? I mean, it, it's, it's embarrassing, actually. The, it's like believing in a fairy tale. Why can't we just leave this plane of existence and move on and be like the angels in heaven? 
I'm not even sure I'd want to be in this body forever, for all eternity. I mean, even if it was an upgraded model. God is spirit, right? Why, why can't I be spirit too? Well, these, these objectors are smart people. They make convincing arguments. By, I mean, it stands to reason. Dead people are dead. They don't live again. But they don't need to be. We're spiritual beings, right? And we may feel foolish in trying to defend something so fantastical as the resurrection of the dead. And, and, and honestly, most of us, you know, probably all of us here, wouldn't say that we feel this way. We, we're, we, we accept the resurrection of the dead. We know that one day our, we'll be risen to new bodies. But in our hesitancy to boldly proclaim and defend it, we may sh- show that we actually are a little closer to that sentiment than we would care to admit, that it is foolish and embarrassing and like believing in a fairy tale. Do we ascribe the proper importance to the, the thought of bodily resurrection in our spiritual walk and meditation? in our interactions with others within the church and without. And, of course, it is appropriate that we live each day in this life, in communion and walking with the Lord, and being faithful and attentive to his calling each day, and that we thank him for all the blessings that we do receive in this life. But Paul teaches us to yearn for the resurrection to come as he does in Romans 8:23 and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies the passage that cliff just spoke earlier when he was up giving the announcements from colossians right before that it speaks of us being transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. Paul, throughout all of his writings, speaks of this yearning for the resurrection. Paul preached, and all the other apostles as well, that the fact of the resurrection is of first importance. In fact, bodily resurrection, he's going to go on to argue, is a necessity And that's our next point. And uh, I'm going to have Dina come up and read the next portion of the chapter, verses 12 through 34. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the, de- if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Thank you, Dina. In verse 12, Paul states the problem that the Corinthian church had concerning resurrection. Now, they may have been willing to accept the fact that Jesus himself rose from the dead. If you look back in verse 11, this was a truth that they had received. But some of them had serious doubts that that meant that there would be a general resurrection of the dead. Paul is going to give us seven logical consequences that would result if there were no bodily resurrection of the dead. And he does this in order to show that the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be separated from the resurrection of those who are his. The first consequence would be that Jesus would not have been raised from the dead. Logically, if there is no resurrection of the dead, a dead Jesus cannot be raised. The next consequence following this line of logic is that the apostles' preaching is useless. They are preaching Jesus as Savior and Lord, but if he is dead, of what use is he? And if the apostles' preaching is useless, the believer's faith based upon such preaching is in vain. Furthermore, the apostles are all liars, since the resurrection of Jesus is what they were all preaching. 
these four consequences that Paul has just laid out, on their own, if true, would stand to collapse the whole of Christianity. But there's even more consequences. As he states in verse 17, if, G- if Christ is still in the grave, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. That means not just you, but those who died trusting in Jesus for their salvation, they have perished as well. And finally, the seventh consequence, the ultimate consequence, to cap it all off, we find in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Think about that, considering what Paul is saying to these Corinthian believers. Now, you might think, and I remember having this exact same thought myself on numerous occasions, that even if Christianity weren't true, it's still a better way to live. And I guess you could argue that you would live a more moral and ethical life. But if this life is all that there was, if you die and then you're done, that's it. Why would such a moral, ethical life even matter? And then think about it a little further. Is the Christian life really a better way to live now? We, in our own context, in our own comfortable times, we may have a simplistic rationale for the benefits of the Christian lifestyle, but what if you are an Afghani or you live in North Korea? What if you are the daughter of a mullah in Yemen and Christ calls you to himself? What if you are a member of a street gang someplace The only people you've known and trusted your whole entire life, well, they're gang members too. What if you know all of their secrets, all that they've done? You know who they are. You know all the criminal activity that you've been involved in. And then Christ calls you to himself. I don't think that we can always say that outside of some eternal reward, the Christian life is simply a better way to live. And remember that Paul has just made the argument that apart from the resurrection of the dead, our faith is futile, we are still in our sins, and even the dead in Christ have perished. But in fact, as he laid out earlier at the beginning of the chapter, Christ has been raised from the dead, and our hope is not in this life only. The fact of Jesus' resurrection is central to the gospel because the good news of resurrection is for all of us. Through the fall of Adam, the first man, death entered into the world, and we, and he, as our representative, because he represented us, we also, through him, enter into death. By virtue of our humanity, we are united with Adam in our present natural existence, in sin, and in death. In the same way, Jesus, the second man, is our representative, who bore our, our penalty. And in him, 
we are resurrected into new life, eternal life. By virtue of the fact of our faith in Jesus, we are united with Jesus in spiritual existence, in righteousness, and in new life to come. Jesus, Paul tells us, was raised from the dead as first fruits. Now, first fruits was the first part of the harvested crop that the Israelites were required to bring as an offering to God. This first fruits, this portion of the crop, was a representation, a token of the entire crop, and it acknowledged that it, all of it belonged to God. And Paul confirms this in verse 23, that like Christ before us, we will likewise be resurrected at his coming. These end-time events, the second coming, the resurrection, the reign of Christ, the destruction of all of God's enemies will occur in the order that God has ordained, and the final enemy, it says, to be destroyed will be death. Then Jesus, the Son, will deliver the kingdom to God the Father, thus culminating his messianic work, that God may be all in all. Ultimately, we see that death will be no more. Now, Paul continues his argument by pointing out the inconsistency of those objecting to bodily resurrection by bringing up a cryptic reference to those being baptized on behalf of the dead. And there's no satisfying answer to exactly what practice Paul was referring to, but we can be assured that whatever it was, it certainly was not consistent with doubts concerning resurrection. He then goes on to his final argument for the necessity of resurrection by asking a simple question. Why do we do this if there is no resurrection? Paul's only reason for the suffering and persecution he endured was his hope in the resurrection. He bluntly states that there, if there is no resurrection of the dead, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This harkens back to his statement in verse, six, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The incentive that we have for living the Christian life, the hope to be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the resurrection of the dead. That is what makes it a necessity. Its factualness, its veracity, its importance, bodily resurrection is the incentive for holy living. And holy living is a necessity for those who are called into God's family. Look at verses 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul is telling us that bad association, bad association exposes you to bad theology. Bad theology leads to bad morals, failure to confront the error and false doctrines, heresies, or bad theology, such as the denial of the resurrection is a bad thing. In compromising, you yourself will adopt the same air and end up removing the key incentive for holy living. We need to have a strong sense of divine accountability, and the resurrection is what supplies that needed accountability. 
So after reminding him of the fact of the resurrection and the necessity of the resurrection, Paul moves on to discuss the nature of the resurrection, which is our next point. And Dino will now read verses 35 through 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Thank you, Dina. We humans are by nature curious. It's our nature to want to understand things, how they work, to know the cause and effect. We study, we theorize, we question And this is a testament to our mandate from God to rule and subdue and have dominion over the earth. But in our fallen state, we we often end up in foolishness and delusion in our quest for understanding. It is natural that we would be curious about the workings of the resurrection. I find myself wondering about it quite often. I wonder, what will my glorified body be like? Will I have identical physical features? You know, big one, what what my age appear to be? Will I be young? Will I be old? Ageless? What What is agelessness anyway? I don't know. I mean, I like to joke that someday I will be four trillion years old and sprint to the top of mountains just for the fun of it. And I don't think that I'm wrong in that, but don't ask me how that could possibly be. I'd, I'd have no idea. And of course, all of my theorizing is influenced by my own preconceptions. But the truth is that resurrection is an act of God alone, 
Only God can do this. But when we have questions about how God can raise the dead, when there are so many corpses that have decayed to dust, that have been burnt to ash, that have been dismembered or eaten, all we're actually doing is betraying our own foolishness. Paul, after bluntly saying, you foolish people, points to the creation that is all around us, the natural world that we see every day, things that we accept as mundane, like the planting of seeds that grow into plants. And this is a perfect example of continued life and existence, yet in a completely different form. No one can argue that the oak tree was not at one time simply an acorn, but now no sign of that acorn exists. Yet whatever life is in the tree began in the seed, and the seed is now a tree. Jesus himself used the same illustration in John 12, 23-24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Speaking of his own death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus also says that it will bear much fruit, and we are that fruit. So how is it that we give no thought to the seed we plant in the ground, growing into a lush, flowering, green plant, but we wonder how the dead will be resurrected. We take a dormant, static, lifeless seed that is in a very real sense the plant that will come later. We see and we recognize a progression, a difference, a change, and undeniably it is a continuity. If God can create such things in the natural world, should we wonder that he can resurrect the dead to new transformed bodies, the same person, the same life, continued. When Paul appeared before King Agrippa in Acts 26.8, he asked, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God should raise the dead? Why indeed? Paul asked the Corinthians to consider the many unique varieties and forms of flesh God has given to his creatures. The thing that instantly springs to my mind when I was reading this is the metamorphosis that a caterpillar goes through in its chrysalis to emerge as a butterfly. This is one of those things that makes you wonder if atheism is dead. Because a caterpillar, when it enters the chrysalis, is literally entering its coffin. The caterpillar is not going to undergo a gradual transformation of the caterpillar's tissues and organs into those of a butterfly. Rather, it is a near total dissolution of all of its beings. The overwhelming majorities of the cells in a caterpillar called larval cells, the ones that make up the organs and the tissues of a caterpillar, literally dissolve into an organic goo. Those cells break apart, they die. There is no cell left. Only a very few cells, called imaginal cells, which had lain dormant and useless during the caterpillar stage of life, these remain and they now begin to differentiate and divide and recycle 
the material that had once been the caterpillar body, and it begins building a whole new butterfly body. This is something that is absolutely mind-blowing. Yet it is what happens naturally around us millions, if not billions of times a day. How, are, how much more magnificent and wonderful and splendorous and glorious do you think our own transformation into our resurrected bodies can be? Paul is pointing us to the incredible wonders and diversity of the natural world around us. Even if we just limit our thinking to the natural possibilities of resurrection, how can we think that it has begun God's ability to do it marvelously? But Paul doesn't leave it there. He points out that the resurrection will transcend the natural. Our natural bodies are perishable. Our natural bodies bear dishonor and weakness. Instead, our resurrected bodies will be spiritual bodies. Look in verse 44. Paul states that just as there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. It is spiritual, but it is a body too. Whereas our bodies now are perishable and weak, destined to die and decay, our resurrected bodies will be imperishable, glorious, powerful. Our current bodies we have inherited from Adam, who himself was formed from the dust of the ground. From Jesus, the man from heaven, we inherit our new bodies. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul tells us that the nature of the resurrection will be God's doing, unique and individual, wonderful, and of the same kind as of Jesus himself. And that's going to bring us to the last points of our notes. Paul has reminded us that the gospel is founded upon the fact of the resurrection, that the resurrection is necessary for our faith to be of any value, that it is foolish to think that it is too incredible a thing to imagine when God already has done such incredible things in the natural world around us. He's going to finish with the argument this this is the good message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the resurrection. Dina will now read the last verses of the chapter. I, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death 
is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thank you, Dina. All of this is good news, for if there were no resurrection, we would not inherit the kingdom of God. The resurrection is absolutely necessary for this to happen. Yet not everyone, Paul says, will need to be resurrected. Some will be alive on the day that Christ returns, and for them, too, a transformation will take place. In the twinkling of an eye, the smallest measure of time, we shall all be changed. The dead will be resurrected, and along with those who are living, all will receive their new glorified bodies. Our perishable flesh and blood bodies cannot enjoy the promise of Jesus found in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Because I live, you also will live. Then is ushered in the promised victory over death. This is the heart of the gospel, our eternal union with Jesus in the kingdom of God forever, only made possible by our bodily resurrection from the dead. Paul sums up our cause for rejoicing in the last few verses. Death has no power apart from sin that is unforgiven. The law of God reveals to us that we are all sinners. The law is the engine that drives our knowledge of our own sinfulness. But Jesus has satisfied every breach of the law. The Christian sin is forgiven. It is washed away. Therefore, for those who are in Christ, there is no sting in death. Rather, death is holy and precious when a Christian dies. It can even come as a welcome friend. In Christ, death is disarmed, defanged. Death has no sting, but only in Christ. Every Christian needs to thank God for this wonderful good news. Because we will be resurrected, we can accept the challenge of living this life now, standing true in the gospel, doing the good work and following Jesus confident in the good reward that he has promised us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the wondrous good message of, your, of our new inter, eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for boldness to yearn for that day, to recognize 
the marvel and the glory and the greatness of the good news, the gospel message that you have delivered to us, that you have made possible through your Son. We look forward to the day when with new resurrected and glorified bodies, we might enjoy your eternal presence with everlasting praise. Amen. Thank you for being with us. God bless and yearn for your resurrected body.